particularly to the stolen generation, uh, those whose lives had been blighted by past government policies of forced removal as children and indigenous assimilations. On its website, the National Museum of Australia writes this about the apology. It says, The apology elicited a wide range of emotions amongst those affected. While few believed that it would completely erase the pain of the past, many felt that a vital first step in the healing process had been taken. That is, the response was measured but optimistic. And that vital first step in the healing process, taken 11 years ago, was just that. It was a first step. It remains part of an ongoing process of reconciliation, an ongoing process of healing. A couple of years ago, there was the Uluru Statement, another step in that process. And just in yesterday's Sydney Morning Herald, two of the opinion pieces were all about Indigenous reconciliation. It continues to be an issue. What is reconciliation? What is reconciliation? Well, it's peacemaking, isn't it? It's, it's, re it's re the restoring and the fixing of broken relationships. In the case of our country, it's the broken relationship between our, our First Nation people and the people who followed, white settlers, and arguably everyone else. And on that level, the sort of reconciliation needed is particularly complex. It's hard to move beyond the abstract, isn't it? What does it mean? What does it mean for a nation of many millions of people with many generations of history to experience true reconciliation? What does that look like? Is it enough just to admit your wrongs, say you're sorry and move on? That has formally happened, hasn't it? Or does more need to happen? I don't believe there are any easy answers to that question. More surely needs to happen, but what exactly? And I think it's why the emotions and responses of Indigenous Australians at the time of the apology and to even today, they remain measured. It's partly why we continue to recognise National Sorry Day like we did last Sunday and Reconciliation Week, which is just coming to an end now. And leaving to one side the particulars of the issue, what these efforts signal to us is that reconciliation as a goal is at the heart of all truly genuine lasting human relationships. This ongoing endeavour of Indigenous reconciliation on a, what we might call a macro level, it reminds us that all relationships involving human beings are flawed. They're all subject to breakdown and that without true reconciliation, they will remain in that state. They will remain broken down. And we know this from personal experience going from the macro to the micro, we know what it's like to fall out with a friend or with a family member, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, or with a work colleague. We know the pain of that experience of relationship breakdown. We know what it feels like to be wronged by others and not have that acknowledged. And we know, perhaps, what it's like to have wronged others and not be prepared to acknowledge it. And as we as we kind of consider that relationship, we know it doesn't feel right. It's not as, as it should be. What do we yearn for there? And maybe that's where you find yourself this very evening. Maybe you find yourself with someone in a state of estrangement, irreconciled. If that is you and if the relationship does matter, I, I dare say that like myself, when I have found myself in that position, you will have a deep longing, a primary longing for that relationship to be fixed. What you will yearn for is reconciliation. 
And that's the theme at the heart of our passage this evening. The reconciliation our passage speaks of is, first and foremost, between God and people. And has overlap with the reconciliation that we experience one-to-one, but it's also very different, as Mike kind of alluded to at the beginning of the service. But it's also the theme, not just of this passage, but of the whole of biblical revelation, that there is estrangement between God and people that he has created. That there has been a real and disastrous breakdown of relationship and not a breakdown where you don't know which side did the the fault, a breakdown caused by and sustained by our human self-interest and rebellion against our Creator. That is what the Bible calls sin, a very common word to us, and it's sin with its inherent self-interest that lies at the heart of all human estrangement. And maybe as you sit here this evening, maybe you find yourself wondering, maybe for the first time, where do I stand with God? Like me personally, am I reconciled to God? How do I know? Maybe they're questions you've never really asked before. Maybe they're questions, though, that have played on your mind and which you've never really found an answer to. If so, don't, don't dismiss that. According to the Bible, God cares deeply for his relationship with you. We matter to God. And Paul communicates that in this passage by explaining that we matter so much that God has reconciled us to himself he does it in three ways he he talks about the what of reconciliation the how of reconciliation and the what now of reconciliation and this passage is reminds us not only that god has made reconciliation possible between us and him but that as a result reconciliation lies at the heart of our very identity and everything that we do as christian believers so let's look first at the what of reconciliation. And when we see this, we see that it's all about new creation. The first step of reconciliation with God is being made new. A new heart, a new mind, a new way of living, a new way of thinking and seeing the world. One that rightly sees and prioritizes God and his purposes over against the self-interested priorities inherent to each of us as sinful human beings. If you've been with us throughout this series you'll be aware that Paul is writing to a church with whom he's seeking to reconcile. There's relational baggage behind this letter. And this baggage is due in part to the Corinthians' mistaken obsession with outwardly impressive things, outwardly impressive expressions of spirituality, outwardly impressive versions of Christian leadership. Paul's personal presence was to them quite underwhelming. He wasn't particularly eloquent before them. He had his ups and downs. He'd lived a life of hardship. And so they dismissed him as unimpressive and as as weak, as someone in whom God was clearly not at work. Look at that guy. He can barely string two words together when he's with us. And Paul says, that's not how you should be thinking. That's not who you are anymore. In being reconciled to God, your old ways of thinking and living, they've been replaced by a whole new outlook, a whole new identity. And we see that in verse 17 of chapter 5, don't we? Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. A couple of times during its long run on air, I caught the season finale of The Biggest Loser. For those of you not familiar with it, The Biggest Loser was a weight loss reality competition. And in the last episode, 
kind of the finale, when the finalists would come out to reveal to everyone their new slim down bodies, there would be this real sense of old me, new me. And the way they represented that was that the contestants would walk down a walkway and on the other walkway, they'd be superimposed their pre-show bodies, their pre-show self. And when they got to the end of the walkway, they kind of look over at that pre-show self and they kind of give it a sort of get out of here, dismissal action, and it would disappear. And that was to highlight the fact that they saw themselves as not that person anymore. That's the old me. The old has gone. The new has come. And that dramatic contrast is a bit like what Paul's depicting here. The person reconciled to God is, in a very stark and real way, a whole new person. This new creation changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see God. Perhaps you know this from experience. You didn't really understand your sin. You didn't really understand who God really was. And then there was a time when you did start to see yourself and God that way. It's being made a new creation that helps us rightly see God as perfectly, unapproachably holy and ourselves as not that. It's being made a new creation that causes us to realize we need to be reconciled with God in the first place. And it's being made a new creation that helps us to grasp just how much God loves us in what Jesus has done. It's only the new creation that truly understands the depth of what Christ has done in dying and rising to new life. So what does reconciliation involve? It involves new creation. That's the what of reconciliation. What about the how of reconciliation? Well, look with me, please, at verse 18. Paul writes, Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Unlike the, unlike the biggest loser contestant, the person reconciled to God hasn't achieved this new creation. We can't create it ourselves through hard work and discipline and focus. As a creation, we are by definition the product of someone else's work. Our reconciliation with God is completely the work of God himself. Everything is from God, Paul says. It's he who has reconciled us to himself not the other way around it's he who has not counted the world's trespasses their sins against them what does that mean not to have count them against them not make them face the consequences of that sin judgment and, re- and separation from him how has he done this he's the god of justice that seems like a fundamentally unjust thing to do to turn a blind eye to all our injustices has he done that No, he hasn't, because the key words here are in Christ, through Christ. They're familiar phrases maybe to many of us here. What does he mean by that? Well, look with me, please, at verse 21, a very well-known verse from this passage. Paul writes, He, that is God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, I think we often think of sin as, as acts, as things that we do, and that, that, is, that is sin. But in this verse, Paul doesn't describe sin as an act, or even just as guilt, but as a reality that has possessed the human being and which has become inseparable from our person. And so while we're made in God's image with all the goodness and beauty that comes with that, we are also, in the words of the Bible, sin. 
And it's that, it's that sinful personhood that, that leaves us stranded before God, unreconciled, because holy and unholy cannot coexist. And yet, it is that same sinful personhood that Jesus took on when he died in our place. That is what Paul is saying here in verse 21. In some real sense, Jesus became the very embodiment of our sin. He became the sinless sinner. And in him, we become what? A new creation. What does it look like, a new creation? It looks like the righteousness of God. Imagine that being being said about you. That you are the righteousness of the righteous, holy, before-time God. And when you're righteous before God, when sin is no longer in the way, when it's no longer part of your person, then, then you are reconciled to God. It's what the Bible speaks of as salvation, the work of God on our behalf. Now, does this mean that there is automatically universal salvation for everyone? After all, Paul seems to use that language. There's a bit of a universal scope to his language here. No, that isn't the case. Jesus' death on our behalf, it's sufficient for everyone, but it's effective only for those who embrace that. And we might remember that from where we've been in 2 Corinthians. Paul's already spoken about about holding out the message of what Jesus has done to the world only for it to be received as the stench of death. Paul's already spoken about how the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And that's why we see Paul urging the Corinthians and kind of summing up his whole message as one of response. He says, doesn't he, in verse 20, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Take it up, own it, embrace it. He says to them in chapter 6, verse 1, don't receive God's grace in vain. It's there for you to take. And he says in chapter 6, verse 2, quoting from the Old Testament, I heard you in an acceptable time and I helped you in the day of salvation. Look, Paul says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't just sit there and let it pass you by. Embrace the reconciliation that is already yours in Christ, if you would have it. If that is not true of you, if you can't say that you have embraced what Christ has done, then make no mistake, you are not reconciled to God. But if that is true of you, if you have simply embraced what Christ has done, then make no mistake, you are reconciled to God. Right here, right now. That's salvation. That's the how of reconciliation. Which leads us to the second part of the passage and the third and final aspect of reconciliation that Paul describes. The what now of reconciliation? What does that look like? What does that mean for us then? For those of us who have embraced it by placing our trust in Jesus who died for us. If you look in verse 15, you'll see Paul continuing his thought from the previous verse writing, And he, that is Christ, died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Jesus' love has a purpose. Jesus' love, as expressed in his sacrificial death, has a purpose. That those who live, those who respond to that love, no longer live for themselves. But they live for Jesus. And what does that mean? That means becoming, as it were, his reconciliation representatives. 
Again, look with me at verse 18. Paul writes, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Our purpose as those who have been reconciled to God is to hold out God's reconciliation to the rest of the world. And again, Paul's already kind of been in this area, hasn't he? Already in the letter. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago when we were reminded that as believers, all of us are ministers. All of us reflect God's glory and have the privilege and responsibility of doing that. That's the ministry of reconciliation that he has given us. The the message of reconciliation he has committed to us. That is primarily how we live for the one who died for us and was raised. We become his, his ambassadors. That's the language he uses in verse 20, isn't it? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. And when you hear the word ambassadors, we know what that means. It's someone who represents one party to another, who communicates for one party to another. Maybe like me, your mind automatically goes to the kind of international stage, diplomats, one country's ambassadors, being in embassies, talking to others. But that whole idea of, Being an ambassador, it's broader than that. And it's particularly become uh, something that we talk about in our day and age with, um, of all things, brands. We talk about brand ambassadors. And as seemingly kind of uh, superficial as that is, I was reading this week about brand ambassadors and I was struck by how much it helps us think about what Paul is saying here. On one particular website that was advocating for the importance of brand ambassadors, they asked three questions about brand ambassadors. First, what is a brand ambassador? A brand ambassador, it says, is a person hired by an organisation or company to represent a brand in a positive light and by so doing, help to increase brand awareness and sales. The brand ambassador is meant to embody the corporate identity in appearance, demeanour, values and ethics. That's obvious enough. I get that. Okay, why do you need a brand ambassador? Here's their answer. Leveraging your biggest fans and, wait for this, creating customer evangelists aid in holding up your brand's promise in real life. You can define all the qualities of your brand on paper, but ensuring, that, but ensuring that your values permeate through everything you do, not just what you say, that is key. Ensuring that your values permeate through everything you do. That's why you need brand ambassadors. And then finally, logically, the question is, well, then who? Who can be a brand ambassador? And they write, you could argue that any employee, customer, or social media fan is a brand ambassador, someone who upholds your brand ethics, image and ethos, but the most valuable brand ambassador falls within the most dedicated echelon of your target audience. They're loyal enthusiasts who want to champion a brand they love and amplify its presence. That doesn't sound all that different to the picture Paul paints in this passage, does it? In verse 20, Therefore we as ambassadors for Christ certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But even before that, verse 14, why does, why does Paul do what he does? For Christ's love compels us. He's compelled by love. He's a loyal enthusiast who is championing the truth that he loves, the, the Lord that he loves, and wanting to amplify his presence in the world. 
I mean, the website even uses the term customer evangelists. Those who have a good message, good news to share. Pretty lofty aims. Now, of course, you know, when you kind of reflect on that, it seems a bit overblown when applied just to the superficial world of brands and retail. But what about when the promise that you're speaking of is reconciliation? Reconciliation with the God who made you. What about when the promise is new creation? Living God's perfect way in part now and living his perfect way in full for eternity. They're the promises that Paul holds out. As he says in verse 11, he seeks to persuade people, verse 11 of chapter 5, as he pleads on Christ's behalf for people to be reconciled with God. A plea that he in part directs to the Corinthians themselves. He does not assume that every person in that church is reconciled to God, that everyone in that church has given their lives to Jesus. Mike and I, we don't assume that either about our church here. We long for it, but we don't assume it. And if that is you here tonight even, maybe you've been coming for days, weeks, months, years. If you're aware that you haven't actually taken hold of what Christ has done for you, then hear Paul's appeal, be reconciled to God. Now is the day of salvation. It's an extremely important role, ambassadors for Christ. And yet, as we reflected on a couple of weeks ago, and like all true ministries of Christ, for all its importance, for all its responsibility, it comes with no guarantee of human reward, no guarantee of human glory. In fact, quite the opposite. It's the challenges that come from representing the gospel of Jesus to the world that give it its its value, that give it its commendation, that give it its spiritual legitimacy and eternal focus. That's the point of the list that Cam read for us in chapter 6. The same point Paul's been making to the Corinthians for ages now. Not just in this letter, in his previous letter, probably for 18 months. That it's through human weakness and hardship and trouble that God works, often most powerfully. Why is that so? It's so that the power and glory of God may be seen most clearly, not ours. The Corinthians don't grasp that. Paul is trying to get them there. But the list we read in verses 3 to 13, I also think it provides us with a useful diagnostic tool. Because it's not just the Corinthians, I think, that continue to struggle with this. We are likewise drawn to outwardly impressive things, outwardly impressive ministries, outwardly impressive Christian leaders, things where there seem to be no hiccups. We long for the perfect church experience, don't we? The perfect ministry experience. For those of us here whose trust is in the Lord Jesus, which I recognise is most of us, who have made a, been made a new creation and appointed an ambassador for Christ, how comfortable are you reading this list? Do you see the challenges and hardships, especially those that come from the explicit proclamation of the gospel? Do you see them as, as commendations, as things to be embraced? Or do they give you reservations, as things to be avoided at all costs? In your living out of the gospel, have you ever experienced anything like this in some way, shape or form? If not, it's probably worth asking yourself, why not? Why not? It's not easy being an ambassador for Christ. It should bring with it a certain challenge and hardship. So do you live a life of reconciliation? Part of the challenge of indigenous reconciliation is that there is no clear moment in time 
that can be pointed to that definitively declares reconciliation is achieved. There may never be. It's going to be a long, drawn-out process, a process we should be committed to, but it may never have that moment. And the same goes even for our personal relationships, for those with whom we seek reconciliation. They're messy, and then we may never have that clarity of moment where we say, yes, there's, there's been reconciliation. Hurt feelings linger, trust needs to be rebuilt. But the cross of Christ is a moment in time. In Christ, on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself. In that moment, all of our wrongs, the wrongs that we could not right ourselves. Why? Because God loves us and he wants us to be in relationship with him. And so God has reached out and he has made the move of reconciliation. That means reconciliation is possible for you and me right here, right now. Now is the day of salvation. This world is passing away. But a more permanent future awaits. Be reconciled to God and enjoy that future as your creator longs and, and, and created you for with him. Reconciliation is at the heart of Christian identity. It's the heart of Christian activity. And if the reconciliation Paul speaks of here is true of you, then you have experienced the deep love of Christ like Paul himself. Let that love compel you as it did the Apostle Paul. Let it compel you in, to be an agent of reconciliation in your own relationships, in your own community. Are there people that you know you haven't had reconciliation with? Pursue that as one who has received reconciliation yourself with your Creator. And let that love compel you to tell others about Jesus, about how they can be right with God through him. It's a wonderful privilege. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for reaching out to us, people made in your image, who has turned that image in on ourselves and rejected you, breaking, breaking our relationship with you. We thank you that you have done everything that is needed and that we can experience reconciliation with you right here, right now, by trusting in Jesus. I pray that for each of us in that room, in this room, you may that may be true. And you may help us to see how we can hold out that message of reconciliation in, in all its forms to our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name.